David Legates is a research fellow at the Independent Institute, a retired professor of climatology in the Department of Geography, and a retired adjunct professor in the Department of Applied Economics and Statistics at the University of Delaware. He received his PhD in climatology from the University of Delaware and has taught at Louisiana State University, University of Oklahoma, and University of Virginia. He is a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Observation and Prediction and former Executive Director of the United States Global Change Research Program. And he has been research scientist at the Southern Regional Climate Center, Chief Research Scientist at the Center for Computational Geosciences and Visiting Research Science Scientist at the National Climate Data Center. Dr. Legates has been published more than 125 times in referee journals, conference proceedings, monograph series, and has made more than 250 professional presentations. Welcome, Dr. Legates, to the Economic War Room. Thank you. Nice to be here. Hey, I want to talk to you. There's a new book. Actually, it's not a new book. It's a third edition of an older book, originally published by Dr. Fred, S. Fred Singer, titled Hot Talk, Cold Science, Global Warming's Unfinished Debate. This has been in the climate debate for quite some time. Tell us about the book. Uh, the book originally was started by Fred back, I believe, in 1999, late 1990s. And then he updated it a couple years later. And before his death, he always wanted to uh, update it again, to have a third edition. And Fred was 92, I believe, uh, going on 93, and he was working on it. Uh, the mind was still there, but the body was failing him. And so he put it together, and then Tony Lupo and I got involved to sort of do some outside uh, assessments of uh, research for him, since he couldn't do it, to go through and read it and uh, make sure it made sense, and since it was being transcribed by someone who was not a climatologist. And so that's why it's, we're not co-authors, but it's with Tony and I. Yeah, well, you did a great job. The original book was a great book. I, I poured through it last night, the updates I appreciate. Uh, I want to talk about, if we can, three different topics. One, the actual science of global warming, which is the cold science part. Uh, two, the political discussions around all of that, which is the hot talk part. And then th third, we'll talk about what we should be doing regarding the politics, the energy, and the planet. So let's start with the science. What is it actually telling us about the climate? Well, the interesting thing is we, we are told that the world's coming to an end, that everything's getting worse, more floods, more droughts, more hurricanes, and so forth. And when you start to look at the record, you start to see there's a lot of fluctuations but there really isn't any long-term trend. I mean, hurricanes aren't getting more intense. They're not making landfall more often. They're not becoming more frequent, uh, but we go through cycles. We go through periods where there's a lot more and there's a lot less. Uh, for example, in Northern Delaware, we are seeing more floods and droughts. It has nothing to do with climate change. It has everything to do with land use change. In particular, the fact that uh, over the last 80 years, Northern Delaware has gone from being very rural to very urban. We now have urban street flooding, which re leads to flooding of the rivers and streams. We have a lot more people demanding the water. So when we get low on water resources, we hit a drought much more frequently. So we are seeing more floods and droughts. It has nothing to do with climate change. And in fact, most of the variables we look at, we're not seeing any major change connected to carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide seems to be only a minor player in climate change. You know, that's interesting because what you just said is that there is a man-made impact on the local climate, uh, land use, 
but in terms of the broader picture, Mother Earth, so to speak, it has not felt the same kind of impact from human activity. Right, and we talk about the urban heat island effect, the fact that cities are warmer than the surrounding countryside. It used to be just before 1940 or so, just after, when we had planes, we decided that instead of taking observations downtown, we would move them outside to the airports and things like that, for example. Well, if you look at Dulles Airport in D.C., I mean, it was in the middle of nowhere back in the 1940s. Now it is in the middle of an urban sprawl. The temperature at Dulles has gone up, again, not because of climate change, but because of local land use change surrounding the airport. So the global apocalyptic vision that everybody's telling us, the science is 100% settled, it, it does not seem to be backed by the solid scientific research that you're doing. It's not backed by the observations. What is backed by are the models, which in, in simply put, the models overstate the case because one, they, uh, they are tuned to give a much greater signal to a carbon dioxide change in temperature, for example, than we actually see in the real world. And the second reason is they tend to use a carbon dioxide model that says that, you know, coal, for example, is going to increase about five times between now and um, 2100. And nobody believes that coal use is going that way. So there are ridiculously extreme scenarios of where we project the carbon dioxide concentration of the atmosphere to be. And that's why the models tend to give you extreme values that really can't be trusted. You know, when I was in science class in elementary school and, and junior high and high school, the whole idea of carbon dioxide, it was something that I was putting out because I breathed out carbon dioxide and plants were taking in and, and doing all sorts of wonderful things for me, cleaning the air and, and at the same time providing food and shelter and, and so forth. But now carbon dioxide is like this poison, this evil enemy of all life in existence. What is the real truth? What is the carbon dioxide footprint looking like around the world and, and what is the impact it's having? Carbon dioxide is plant food. I mean, plants grow better under more carbon dioxide. In fact, commercial greenhouses often pump carbon dioxide in to increase it two, three, four times the ambient levels because plants grow faster. And in particular, what we're finding is that not only do plants grow faster, they are more water efficient under higher carbon dioxide because the stomates don't have to open as wide so they don't let out as much water vapor. One of the things we're seeing in satellites is that there's a general greening of the planet, except in places where we've had urbanization taking place and in places where we've had large scale deforestation, most of the planet is showing a greening and that's due to increased carbon dioxide. And is that a bad thing scientifically to have the greening? Definitely not. I mean, plants love it. Uh, we need plants to keep the car, uh, atmosphere clean, to keep the atmosphere full of oxygen. Uh, it's only a good thing. And so more carbon dioxide is better. In fact, a lot of people have argued that we are in fact carbon dioxide starved in the atmosphere. So more would be better. Wow, why? Well, this is amazing when you look at the actual science I want to come take a break, but when we come back, I want to talk about the agenda for why would you be giving false narratives out there that don't seem to be backed by reality uh, and, and what we should be doing about it. So let's take a break and we'll come back with Dr. Legates. We're talking with Dr. Legates, who has uh, expertise both from the academic side, the, the, but also the government side and the practical side as a scientist studying the climate. And, and we talked about what the actual science says 
But now we have this whole political movement, I think that was birthed during your career. What is the whole climate change political movement about? Well, I got started back way back when, when it was global cooling. And um, my concern has always been that this discussion is not about the science and it really never was. I mean, part of the issue has been that this is an agenda that gets set. It is a way to enforce uh, sort of a global redistribution of wealth. I mean, you can do it within a country. How do you do it between countries? You need something that the countries that are producing more, that are rich, are somehow have gotten rich at the expense of the poor countries, and therefore they need to pay reparations. And climate change becomes that, that uh, agent to get them to pay for the sins they have created against the rest of the rest of the planet. Yeah, in fact, it used to be kind of a hidden agenda, it seemed, but now John Kerry is making it a very loud, vocal agenda that that's the purpose, is it is to pay reparations from one nation to another nation. Yeah, and AOC's uh, chief of staff said, you know, the Green New Deal really wasn't a climate change thing. It was a how do you change the economy thing. We have Ottmar Edenhofer, for example, um, who was at the third... Um, the third working group of the last um, IPCC report essentially said this is about changing the way we do the economy, not really about climate change. So they've thrown off the mantle of using climate change as an example or hiding behind it. They're really interested in changing the economic structure of the planet. Well, and, and when you start from the economic structure standpoint, America's always been about individual liberty. Uh, you go back to the founding, and they actually put in the Constitution uh, patent rights that were delivered to the individual, he, she, or they. You know, the British, by contrast, had the big science societies, and the great science societies weren't nearly as inventive as the individual entrepreneur. And so liberty at the individual level has, has produced massive uh, success economically. But what you're talking about is this climate effort. Sounds like a Rahm Emanuel never let a serious crisis go to waste. They are, have invented a serious crisis, and now they're trying to capitalize on it. Is, am I getting that right? I think so. I mean, early on there were, I mean, and I can't classify everybody with the same brush. I mean, there are people who are true believers. There are people who are useful idiots. There are people who really are working behind the scenes and don't really care about the environment, but it's a nice mechanism to get to where you want to go. And so that's one of the issues. I mean, my advisor told a group of students, um, he said, you know, I, I, I'm really torn on this. With respect to the climate, I, I see them making all sorts of claims about how the climate is changing, and I don't see it at all. But as a progressive, I think the patterns that they're attempting to change are the kinds of things I want to see. And so it was sort of like he wasn't coming out and saying the ends justify the means. But I think for a lot of people, that's exactly what it is, that we can use this climate change issue to make changes to the way in which we've done business. Well, you know, it's frightening to me because across the spectrum, scientifically, we're, we're relegating, we're pushing the, the truth down and the political agenda up. And again, I go back to the British science societies or, or even the American science societies. In the early 1900s, I, I read a New York Times article. It says it will take 10 million years for, for man to learn how to fly. 10 million years. And a few weeks later, the Wright brothers, you know, bicycle repairmen are flying. 
So yeah. it's frightening because it seems like it, it, there's a hidden agenda behind here. Who's benefiting from all of this uh, forced uh, fear mongering of the climate? I think there's a lot of people benefiting, and that's the problem. I mean, the globalists uh, sort of get everybody together under the same wing. Uh, there's there's people in the United States are looking to change the way in which we do things. And climate change becomes an easy example of how you need to go along with the government. Well, it frightens me a little bit. I'm reading about the Dutch farmers complaining because their land is being taken away from them. Other farmers not able to use fertilizers and so forth. It seems like by preventing a crisis that doesn't exist, we may be causing another crisis or several crises uh, like food, energy, water, and so forth. Yeah, I think that goes back to the argument that Paul Ehrlich was making back in the 1970s that we need fewer people. I think there's a lot of population uh, reduction measures in place all across the spectrum from uh, abortion to, um, to euthanasia. And uh, so there's, there's a lot of case where people want fewer people um, on the planet and climate change is, again, one of the ways in which you can argue we need fewer people. Yeah, well, it's an argument that we need fewer people, and it may be a mechanism to have fewer people because people are afraid of the climate. They're not going to have babies, and there's this big push. Uh, so whether it's abortion or just not having children or, or food limitations or travel restrictions and limitations, I mean, we're seeing it. And it's, this is going to massively impact the European economy, and ironically, because they've gone so Green New Deal and they wouldn't frack and produce the energy that the, that the British have, they may freeze this winter or they're dependent on coal or they're dependent on, on Russia. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly the argument is somehow we think that we can go 100% renewable and not have a problem. And I don't, we're never gonna get there, let's put it that way. Before we get there, we will have rolling blackouts, loss of energy, people without heat, uh, and, and all sorts of disasters that are human created. Yeah, which will reduce the population. So maybe that is the goal, uh, at yeah. least for some of them. So g given all of that, what message would you give? One single message would you give to the fear monger and say, wait a minute, because the average person hasn't studied anything like you've studied. They just hear the headlines. So what would be the message that you'd give back? You've got to go back and look at the data. Are we really getting... Are we getting really getting into more floods and droughts that are climate created? Is the planet getting so warm that things aren't going to be able to grow? And the answer is no. I mean, you look at the temperature difference between Washington, D.C. and Richmond, Virginia is about the change in which we're worried about. And so people get along fine in Richmond uh, and Washington. It's not that big a deal. And with more development of plants, with a better growth in plants, uh, we can feed more people. Our technological developments have come along with more people being able to, uh, to work on things. Uh, it's just all around look at the data and pay close attention to what's actually happening. And I think one of the brilliant points of the book that, that you helped with, Hot Talk Cold Science, is the idea that humans are adaptable that we physically can move if we need to move, uh, that we can create answers and solutions using science rather than having science hammer us over the head and tell us that we have to decarbonize, we have to change our lifestyles, we have to stop eating so much food and meat and so forth. It's, it's a brilliant book. We're gonna need to take another break. When we come back, let's talk solutions. What do we do? 
We're talking with Dr. Legates, who's a climate expert. We're talking about the economy and the impact it has on humans, but also on our lifestyle and really our, our actual very existence. And, and this is so broad brush as we're being shoved on us. It's entered every aspect of human society and a big push in the investment world. Something I would have never thought possible when I started investing in 1982 was the impact it would have in the form of ESG investing. Can you describe a little bit about how that impact has come about and what we should do about it? Well, I mean, ESG is environment, um, social, and government. And the idea of those three is to control essentially everything you do. Um, because it's not just what are you doing for the environment, it's particularly you have to be on the environmental playbook. You have to be following the governmental playbook. You have to be doing what is believed to be socially acceptable. And if you're outside that realm, then we start to hammer you, we start to push you to the back, uh, and it becomes more of a problem. So it's really uh, a hammer, if you will, to make people follow along and do what we want them to do. Well, you know, what bothers me about ESG is that Larry Fink and BlackRock, while they'll, they'll try and enforce that on American companies, they'll turn and invest in China. What, what does China do for the environment? Is China good for the climate? That's the funny thing, is China is building, building essentially a coal-fired power plant about every week, uh, and they're using them. They're not just building them and letting them sit, as they're doing with some of their cities. So the idea is they are becoming much more coal dependent. In particular, China produces most of the rare earth minerals uh, that we need, but we, we often argue that's part of clean energy. But the process of getting them out of the ground is anything but clean. It takes a lot of energy and a lot of fossil fuels. It takes usually a lot of uh, forced labor. And in particular, uh, it's strip mining. It, it, they're, they're called rare earth because they don't exist in, in uh, like silver or gold. They don't exist in veins. So you've got to go through a lot of ground and sift through it and use all sorts of disastrous type of techniques to separate it from the soil. It is not very clean at all, but people just don't ever hear about that. They see the wind turbines, they see the solar panels, they think they're good for them, they're not. Yeah, well, so let, let's separate a second. The environment from the climate, which you sort of did in our first segment, uh, these things are all bad for the environment. Are they gonna impact the climate long-term or is the earth big enough to handle it? Uh, they may impact the climate, but I'm concerned that they may impact the biosphere faster. I mean, a lot of this produces pollution. The, the, the solutions that have to be used to get these rare earth minerals out of the soil creates all sorts of pollution locally. And they get into the, the, the uh, rivers, they get into our groundwater system for drinking purposes. They create all sorts of local problems, both in China, in uh, Africa, in uh, places in South America where the Chinese are working to get them out. Uh, it's just not a clean process. And a lot of people never hear about it. And most people don't want you to hear about it. Well, it's a very successful process in transferring wealth from the Western developed countries to China and other nations. Uh, but as you point out, it may be riskier for the environment than, than the traditional use of fossil fuels, at least the way we do it in the United States, where we have uh, restrictions on how we extract them and restrictions on how we use them. But what they're claiming is the big bad of all of this is carbon. And you're pointing out that these rare earth mineral processes may actually cause more harm to the environment. So why have the scientists made carbon the big bad? 
That's an interesting discussion because in particular, um, you know, carbon dioxide is produced as a byproduct of fossil fuel use. And so we can say that the carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere is going up. It's a greenhouse gas, so it's trapping energy, and that's why we're getting warming temperatures. But the most important greenhouse gas on the planet is not carbon dioxide, it's water vapor. And I was in a congressional hearing, and in particular, um, I believe it was uh, Senator Vitters who asked Dr. Michael Mann about it. And he said, if, car if water vapor is the most important greenhouse gas, then why are you so fixated on carbon dioxide? And I thought Mann was going to say essentially, well, it's because carbon dioxide is being produced, it stays in the atmosphere long term, giving some sort of scientific answer. The answer he actually gave was because we can regulate carbon, we can't regulate water. And so I think that's the key. Carbon is produced as a byproduct of fossil fuel use, and therefore we can control the fossil fuel use so we can regulate that. Even though water vapor is a much more important greenhouse gas, it cycles quite a bit. You can't stop the oceans from evaporating. We can't regulate water vapor into the atmosphere. So it's not an issue, but carbon dioxide can be, and that's what they were after. All right, well, that makes sense, and it's sad, but it also scares me because somebody is gonna go out there and say, well, we've gotta limit your water intake or something nonsense like that. I think that's exactly coming down the road. I mean, water is necessary for life. We've got people living in deserts that really shouldn't be there. We've got limited water resources because you know, they're in deserts, and so they have limited water resources. The question then is, where are we going to get water for these people? Um, and the answer is going to be water rationing, or at some point, making people go away. And again, that goes back to the population control. Less people means less water demand, less water usage, and that works for them. So I just see the brilliance of this, because if you use the quote science, and I am, by the way, Dr. Fauci who says, I am science, I, he may get in the climate industry now that he's left, uh, left government and the healthcare industry. But uh, the point being is that if the scientists can say, this is the way it is, and everybody agrees with me, even though that's not true, they now have the ability to regulate our energy use. We've talked about food, and maybe possibly even water. All the elements of life necessary can be controlled by the elite technological, scientific people, even though they're not using uh, real data. That's correct. I mean, energy too. I mean, the, the way we have developed as a country, we have developed as a civilization by using energy. And what we really need to pull people out of poverty is cheap, affordable energy. If you make energy expensive and difficult to obtain, you're going to make people back and push people back into poverty. You're going to make them have more difficult time to survive. And again, that pushes you towards only having fewer people. Yeah, no, I think about Africa. If you want to uh, bring up the standard of living in the nations of Africa, you need transportation. Uh, what are we going to do? Say, well, you got to put in electric charger stations and, you, and all electric vehicles. I don't think they're in any way prepared to do that. But if you could just take some gasoline and put an in internal combustion engine, you can change the world with that. No, you, you, you make brilliant points, and I really appreciate it. Dr. Legates, what, what's the best way to follow you? Where can, is it independent.org? Uh, you can go to the Independent Institute. I'm also working with the Cornwall Alliance. So you can go to cornwallalliance.org. It's a Christian organization that's interested in uh, with scientists, uh, theologians, uh, economists, 
to try to find poverty issues and to promote the gospel that way. Well, I certainly appreciate it. We've loved having you as a guest in the Economic War Room. I hope we can come back to you and talk to you about climate in the, again. And, and you know, we're, we're going to take all of our discussion here. We're going to put it in an economic battle plan. Every episode has one. Uh, viewers can get a free copy at economicwarroom.com. And what we say all the time is what we see as a marketplace, our enemies view as a battle space. This is Kevin Freeman from the Economic War Room.